Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling, here in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'm joined by Mike Cosper. Uh, Mike is the pastor of worship and arts at Sojourn Community Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He's a great thinker and author. His latest book is The Stories We Tell, which I highly recommend. Helps us think through consuming culture and what are the stories that media, film, uh, books, radio, music tells us about the culture and also how do they point to the grand gospel narrative. And so we're going to talk to him today about his favorite books and movies of the year. Mike is just a great thinker, helps us not just think of what was cool and what was fun, but also what are some themes we can draw out of some of these media to help us think more clearly and more Christianly. Before we start talking with Mike, however, I do want to remind you about the ERLC's email newsletter called The Weekly. Uh, If you have not signed up for The Weekly, you really should. This is a quick but informative read that comes once a week into your email inbox and really aggregates top stories from a Christian perspective. So we usually focus on one big story and then have links and a little bit of commentary on some of the other stories going on. This is a must read. I know for for those who are busy uh, with school and, and work and church and family, don't have time to really process the news like they'd want to. This is a way for you to get briefed once a week. So you can sign up for the weekly by visiting my website, danieldarling.com, and clicking on the link there. But for now, let's join our conversation with Mike Cosper. Well, Mike Cosper, thanks for joining me here today on the Way Home Podcast. Yeah, man. Glad to be here. Thanks. So I, I want to talk about you know what you consider maybe your favorite uh, movies of the year, maybe books that you've read this year. But before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about our trip to Israel. So uh, have you fully recovered uh, <laughs> from our trip to the Middle East? Yeah, no, it was it was uh, it took took a couple weeks to get some yeah. kind of the sleep schedule back to normal. But uh, but yeah, I, I mean. I said to my wife when we got home that I felt like it was going to take me a, a couple of months to really even process what we experienced. Yeah. Um, it was so dense, and it was so dense because it wasn't just the wasn't just visiting the Holy Land sites. It was like it was visiting those sites, but then standing on the Golan Heights and mm. literally watching the Syrian civil war take place, yeah. or you know, going to a, a hospital in Galilee that had been hit by Hezbollah rockets. So, mm. just the the visceral reality of the political tension over there really struck both of us. And uh, we, we continue to talk about it almost daily. Yeah, we do too. You know, Angela and I were just, I've been before, but what was so remarkable about this trip was just, you know, how much we were exposed to all sides of this issue. And, you know, it's, it's such a complicated issue, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You know, we like to make it like it's a binary thing, but Right. There's so many different parties involved. What was interesting to me, I don't know if this struck you, but just Christians in the Middle East is complicated, right? Because you have right. just the different parties. You have you know, evangelicals, you have some who are Coptic Christians, you have Aramaic Christians, you have Messianic Jews, you have Palestinian Christians. I mean, to be an evangelical over there is probably pretty pretty difficult and complicated. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true. And I remember one of the conversations that struck me most heavily was with uh, with the guy who was pastoring a, uh, a church 
I believe he was pastoring a church in Jerusalem. He met with us that one night. He started talking about the way evangelism works over there, and you know we're 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 in the midst of a uh, a pretty major transition with our church moving towards uh, a multi-ethnic congregation, and um, as we've moved into a, a multi-ethnic neighborhood, and as we wrestle with that stuff here, um, one of the messages that gets gets repeated loud and clear is that, you know, if, if you want to reach African-Americans, you need African-American leadership, uh, reaching out, building relationships and connecting. That's how, that's how multi-ethnic ministry works over here. And I, I remember the, the, he was an Arab Christian who came and spoke with us and was talking about how evangelism worked over there. And he's like, you know, it's, it's really, um, evangelism is most effective over here when people go sort of across racial and ethnic lines. Like, it's it's not impressive for a, an Arab Christian to share the gospel with, you know, with a Jew because they're like, oh yeah, you're excited about your faith, great. But for a, a Jewish Christian to reach out to, mm. you know, to an Arab Muslim per se or uh, whatever, that crossing those ethnic boundaries surprises people and it, it it'll cause them to be more interested in what they have to say about the gospel as a result. Yeah. I just found that I just found that surprising and interesting in that like how unique every context is you know each context demands something a little bit different i suppose yeah and what struck me that that really struck me and one of them was you know a lot of great movement and talk about church planning today which is so great to see sort of that in, in the church in the evangelical church and going to um Difficult areas, but I tell you, if you wanted to really go to a difficult place and do church planning, I mean, to me, Israel or the Middle East, but particularly in that Israeli context, it would be difficult just because, as an evangelical, it seems like it'd be difficult at a number of levels. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you know, you get hit from a number of places. The other thing that was that was interesting to me too was how difficult it must be to be a Christian and not. You know, we talk in America a lot about trying to be prophetic and not being captive to any one movement or party. And it's difficult for American Christians. It must really be difficult over there just with so many of the political forces, you know, swirling yeah. different ways. Well, I think the tension, you know, the tension that, that, that they experience is so radically different than ours. I, one of the things I've said over and over again is how, how surprising it is to be walking through the streets of Jerusalem and to see that just about every third or fourth guy you, you see walking down the street, whether they're wearing casual clothes or clothes for work or a military uniform, but about every third or fourth one has an M16 slung over their shoulder. Um, and I was just, I was just really surprised. I mean, even going to the, to the whaling wall on uh, uh, the Western wall, uh, welcoming the, the Shabbat, mm. the, the sheer number of firearms. Yeah. <laughs> like, and and you know it brings a lot of questions to to mind uh, uh, because obviously the, you know Orthodox Jews are are eager to see the temple rebuilt you know so there's it, it communicates something about that but it also communicates the constant sense of being on guard and being under constant threat because they're surrounded by countries who question the legitimacy of their existence so mm. yeah the, just that that perpetual that perpetual tension uh, and the perpetual threat of violence just creates a, a completely different sense of place. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Well, it was a fun trip, and uh, it was just great to to get to know each other and and everything. And just I think it will really help shape the way I feel like coming back. And I, you probably felt this way too. That I mean, I'm not an expert on on Middle East policy, but I have a much firmer grasp on what's going on in the different. Uh, people at play. So yeah. very productive. So let's talk about 2015. What what are some of our favorite things? And I first want to talk movies. As you look at this year, some of the movies released, maybe what were some of your favorite uh, favorite movies of the year? Yeah, you know, uh, my favorite film of the year, and it's it's, it's a little bit sentimental um, just because of my, for, for a variety of reasons, but my favorite film that I saw this year was The End of the Tour, um, mm. starring Jason Segel and Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, and it's the story of uh, of a road trip that the writer David Lipsky took with the novelist David Foster Wallace mm. in the late 90s when his book Infinite Jest had just become huge. And uh, I loved it for a variety of reasons. I mean, I love Lipsky's book. The, the book is basically, I mean, the book essentially is just a transcript of... Um, of the interviews that that Lipsky recorded as they're driving around and flying on airplanes and sitting in diners uh, in between book signings um, for for Wallace. And the the film is really, really faithful to um, faithful to those transcripts and really brings out, I think, kind of the essence of the book and what they wrestled with and talked about. But what was so interesting was that there's there's a there's a wonderful Sort of narrative tension in the book, in that Lipsky is a novelist whose book has essentially has essentially bombed. Nobody's read it or heard of it, and and Wallace is now like the the biggest writer in the world at the time. His his book is just getting rave reviews, and people are calling him a genius and all this. And so you have um, uh, Eisenberg's character, David Lipsky, has this like envy for for what Wallace has. Like he wants what Wallace has and he's, he, he thinks that what Wallace has is going to make him happy. And the message that Wallace is trying to say to him over and over again is like, yeah, it's great. But if you think that this is going to actually make you happy, like you're going to be really, Mm. you're going to be really disappointed. Mm. And, uh, there's just a lot of like, I think there's a lot of sort of rich insight into desire and what we think is going to satisfy us. And, what we're all sort of working for in one way or the other um, throughout that book and and, the, and throughout the film. And, and I really loved, um, I, I was skeptical that Jason Siegel was going to be able to pull off a, uh, a David Foster Wallace performance. Mm. Um, but he's, he was fantastic and, and Eisenberg is great in everything he does. And I think he really, in a lot of ways, carried the movie. He just, it, it was a well-acted, well-directed. James Ponsolt was fantastic. The, mm. the score is just beautiful. It's a real subtle Danny Elfman score. So that movie just, on almost every level for me, I, I, loved, it. I loved watching it. I, I watched it a couple times. So that was my favorite of the year. Let me ask you a question about that. What is it about David Foster Wallace that just so, I guess, captured the imagination of people and was so influential? Uh, you just find so many people influenced by his work and particular, you know, writers and journalists and creatives. Uh, yeah. What was it about him? And, and, you know, obviously not sure if probably not a believer, but what, what are some of the, th- you know, maybe things that Christians yeah. might learn from his work? Yeah, I think, I think Wallace, um, I think Wallace kind of perfectly articulates the, the, the kind of spiritual struggle of life in, in, in our world today. Mm. Like he really, he really, 
he's he's just as quick to be dismissive of the thought of God and transcendence and, and all of that as he is to evoke it. You know, he so so there's throughout his writing there's this longing for like connectivity and, and sincerity and relationships and you know, a depth of life and a depth of experience. But, you know, then there's there's also like um he, he just as clearly articulates the, the feeling of addiction, whether it's mm. the addic- addiction to substances or addiction to, to entertainment and to distraction and to, to all these things. You know, his in his own life, I mean, his own life kind of represented that as well. Like, here's this really brilliant, deep guy, uh, loves literature, loves loves art, you know, very thoughtful and all of this. And you know, he battled battled a serious drug addiction early in his life, battled depression his entire life, Hmm. And was a was a TV junkie, like was a self admitted like he was the kind of person who could literally sit in front of the TV for eight ten hours a day hmm. um, if he let himself. And so I think he, what he managed to do, the reason he he captured imaginations was he he articulated an experience that's very very common in a way that was like very beautiful, very very funny. A lot of people don't realize that about his books; they are they're laugh out loud funny at times, hmm. and. Uh, you know, it's true of his novels and his maybe even more so of his essays. Mm. So I think he just he just he just expressed something that people can very quickly and easily identify with. You felt the way his characters feel for the mm. same reason that they felt uh, that, that they're feeling these things. That's really good. Any other movies that kind of captured your your attention or imagination this year? Good, bad, and different. <laughs> you know, I, the one movie I've seen it on, on a number of like top ten lists. Um, and, and everybody raved about it when it came out. And it, to be honest with you, it just didn't, it didn't do it for me was, uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Did mm-hmm. you see that one? I didn't see it. No, but everyone was raving about it. I wanted to go see it. I just didn't, I didn't go see it. I don't know if I had it, if it was just too hyped up for me or not. But, um, but when I saw it, you know, there was, there were, there were things about the film that I really liked. I liked the, um, the, there's, there's kind of an interesting feminist theme in there mm-hmm. that, that, uh, about women not being objects. Um, there's an irony to it because the women are definitely portrayed by the camera. The camera still treats them as objects. Um, so that kind of got under my skin. Um, I liked the idea of it, but I felt like they they still treated the women as objects with the camera. The other thing was like the things about the film that felt kind of interesting and innovative, um, and particularly the way I, I saw people writing about it and calling it interesting and innovative, were things that I was like, you know, if you've watched... Sam uh, Raimi films or Terry Gilliam films over the years, especially some of their more indie stuff, a lot of the like camera trickery and the ways that they're building tension just felt familiar to me. Um, And so again, I think I probably came into it too hyped up, like, (laughs) but I did, I mean, I enjoyed watching it. I just, I've just been surprised by the, by the hype around it uh, as, as a result, you know, there were, um, Gosh, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of films this year that I just didn't get to see, mm-hmm. which is which has been frustrating for me too. I just haven't made it to the theaters as often as I as I would like to. So a lot of stuff just just has unfortunately passed me by. I'm waiting for it to hit Netflix, I guess. Yeah, me too. You know what? You know what's interesting? You know, I was listening to an interview uh, with Kevin Bacon, and one of the things yeah. he said, which I t- I t- completely agree with, is that you know he was talking about you know maybe 20 years ago, even 10 years ago if his agent would bring him a script for anything on TV, he would just like, he would get mad. He's like, I don't want to do that. I want to do films. You know, he said the best 
for a long time, the best work was in films. He said it's, he thinks it's reversed that some of the best work being done is being done, I would say TV, but these series, whether it's Netflix or Amazon yeah. or HBO or, or just some of the TV series. Do you, do you agree with that? I think so. I mean, I think, I think there's, there's an ability, you know, I mean, Mad Men, didn't, didn't Mad, Mad Men finale was, was 2015. And, and that's, right, that's a yeah. great example to me of a show that the way they were able to sort of stretch that narrative out and go so deep yeah. and, and to show so many different, so many, so many different aspects of the, of, of, of the characters' lives. Uh, it, it allows for a depth of experience and a depth of the, the writing and the acting and all of that. Yeah. It really takes you into a different kind of place. So I, I think that's, I think that's really true. I mean, I, I will say like there are, they're like those mainstays, like there's, there's a certain kind of film experience that's unlike anything else mm. um, where, where in two hours they can really take you on a ride. Mm. Um, the, one of the movies this year that, that I absolutely loved was Inside Out. Mm. Um, yes. Just as a parent even, just thinking, like watching that movie with my kids and thinking about, you know, my little girl who's, you know, who's eight years old now and just starting to kind of come to a, a place where she's starting to ask questions and, mm-hmm. and kind of wrestle with growing up. Um, man, that movie just, just ripped my heart out. And I think the, that particular experience is unique to, is unique to movies, but that yeah. kind of two hour really give you a, an emotionally charged and imagination charged experience. Yeah. Um, it's pretty unique. It, it is interesting. Like the TV series, if you get a good one and the writing is really good, like the character development that you could do over a long stretch is just, yeah. you know, you you tend to identify, you know, if the casting is good and the character development. So like I loved Mad Men. It was just such a interesting show and just a kind of window into the that world and that time period. But like even things like, um, you know, I, I just finished The Man on the High Castle. Have you seen that? I'm about uh, I'm about yeah. a third of the way through it and, and really enjoying it. It's just an interesting thing. uh how are you liking it so far? Uh, I, I like it. It feels, it, it, to me, it, it's, you know, it's Frank Spotnitz who did the X-Files. Uh, yeah. It feels like the X-Files. It feels yeah. like a, it, there's something very familiar about it yeah. to me. And I, I love the, I, you know, I love the themes. I love, yeah. uh, I mean, everything I've ever read or seen that was based on a, a Philip K. Dick novel yeah. has always been exciting to me. So yeah. I'm digging it so far. I, it, it seems like it's really well done. You know, at first, you know, I, and I, I Dr. Morris gave me such grief about this because I said, yeah, there's this new series. It's an alternative history as if the, the Japanese and the Germans had won World War II. And I just said, you know, it's pretty dark. And he's like, well, of course it'd be dark, you know. <laughs> but but that was my hesitation to, to finish the whole thing. But there is something, yeah. you know, important about watching it to, you know, to go to sort of journey into that darkness to see, to give you an appreciation for, thankfully, what didn't happen. But... The kind of development you could do, you know, one of my favorite shows that I watched this year was Bloodlines on Netflix mm. uh, with Kyle Chandler from Friday Night Lights. I just talked about family dynamics and just the writing was really good and kind of explored things that, you know, these series don't typically explore. Um, any other series or shows that you watched this year that you thought were good before we talk about some of our favorite books? Or Yeah, I, I, I just finished Master of None, um, mm. uh, Aziz Ansari's sitcom, you know, 10 episodes just came out this year and, you know, it's definitely R rated. Uh, mm. so there's that, there's that, whatever you want to call that, that warning to, to viewers. But, um, I, that show really, really took me by surprise because he's, he's obviously very funny. You know, he was great on his character on, uh, 
uh, on Parks and Rec was very sort of uh, absurd and and caustic in certain ways and all this kind of stuff. What what shocked me about Master of None was it was this very sweet, sincere show. Like mm-hmm. it's very funny, um, but it's not like a it's not paced like a Thirty Rock or Arrested Development or a lot of those modern comedies that are just like joke, 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 just slapping you up the side of the face. Mm. This was really, these, these were emotionally dense little stories. And, uh, and he, he just, he plays a really interesting character. He, he wrestles a lot with like the, the, the storylines wrestle with being an immigrant and being mm. the, or being the children of immigrants. You know, his dad, his mom and dad actually play themselves on the show. And his, <laughs> I think his dad steals every scene he's in. And, and again, like, he breaks some molds with the the way the show's written too, and that his relationship with his father, um, it's it's not the typical sort of sitcom thing where you know where everybody's rolling their eyes at their dad and mm. dad's an idiot or that kind of thing or or there's all this hostility. Like his dad is like really sweet and really encouraging to mm. to him as he's you know going about his career. So that, that show really, I, I was sort of hesitant to even turn it on and. It, about, by about the second or third episode, it really drew me in, and, and by the end, I was really impressed with uh, mm. the way it was written and with what, what they did with the story. Mm. It, was, it was good. So uh, I'm going to look that up, definitely. Let's talk about books. Now, I know just in our conversations, one book that really had an impact is uh, Charles Taylor, Secular Age. So do you want to start by talking about, about that book? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's um, <laughs> it took... I probably started it sometime in 2014. That thing's and a probably beast. finished it sometime in mid <laughs> I mean, it's so big and so dense. But yeah, man, that book really, for me, that one really, really just just switched the lights on in a big way mm-hmm. in terms of, um, you know, essentially what he's arguing for in the book or what, what the case that he's making is that we, we live in an age that has been, uh, uh, living in a secular age means living in a disenchanted world. And that's a phrase he uses from, or disenchantment is a, is a word he borrows from Max Weber, the sociologist. And what, what he's saying is he's, what disenchantment means is that, you know, he, he talks about the idea of an enchanted world, which is a world where people have more of a sense of mystery, more of a sense of the presence of spiritual and supernatural more of a general expectation that we live in a world where not everything has an explanation or not everything is necessarily comprehensible. Um, and, and by virtue of that, more of an openness to experiences of God, religion, spirituality, etc. And, uh, you know, he gets into, the, there's, he goes, I mean, again, huge book, goes lots of places, but particularly for me, him talking about how doubt is the, doubt is the, fundamental condition in which belief happens today mm. because we have a culture that sort of pre uh, uh predisposes us to doubt um mm. for me that just really that really articulated something about my own my own religious experience you know that that there is this sort of perpetual um uh, th- 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 there is this way in which our faith in our our belief is always contested whether it's from without or within um, there's always this this pressure against us when we when we think about religion and, and spirituality and it, for me it just it just articulated my experience very well um, 
that and talking about how, how it leads to sort of this malaise, this longing for transcendence and this sense that in many ways, um, you know, we, we can't quite experience it, this fear that maybe we can't experience it because the world has been dried up of, 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 of any sense of, of the supernatural. Mm. Um, I mean, finally, that's talking about Wallace. To me, Wallace as a novelist is articulating exactly what mm. uh, Taylor as a philosopher is articulating. Mm. This longing for transcendence, this longing for connection, and then all these different ways that it resists us and that we resist it as well. You know, you kind of see that in some of the, just the art and the, and the, the music and, you know, just the, the conversations that are happening in the culture too. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways, some Christians are fearful and kind of, you know, wringing their hands because we're sort of in a supposedly post-Christian age, whatever that means, but perhaps missing opportunities to have uh, meaningful conversations with people who aren't believers because of that longing. I mean, answering those longings, yeah. right? Right, right. Well, and, and then there's all kinds of uh, sort of pseudo-religious mm. substitutes that that come in and take take the place. I mean, I'm I'm amazed. Uh, I don't know if it's as big a phenomenon there, but I'm amazed at the the rise of the resurgence of like transcendental meditation mm-hmm. and mindfulness meditation. You know, particularly amongst people who are you know self-described atheists. Mm. Um, this it's like emotional intelligence and self-awareness has become a kind of mm. you know which which TM and and mindfulness meditation are both kind of drawn out of those have become sort of substitutes for sanctification mm. um in a in a in a secular culture so it's uh yeah i think it's we're we're longing for something and and we're knocking on these different doors looking for it and you know accepting in some cases i think except you know accepting certain substitutes it seems to me it would affect our evangelism and apologetics uh and i've noticed this myself that Rather than sort of defensively presenting Christianity as true or, you know, sort of being taken aback when there's a, an antagonism, but presenting Christianity afresh as an alternative story that answers the questions people are already asking. Hmm. Uh, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think I you, well it seems like you. this is kind of what you're seeing with people like Tim Keller and others is they're doing ministry in, in Manhattan and stuff and, and kind of poking at those, those um, I think as Taylor says, those thin places where people are people are sort of yeah. uh, asking those questions. Any other book? I mean, did you have time to read any other books since Taylor's was so, was so, <laughs> was so big? Yeah, no, no. I, 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 this was a good year for reading for me. I read, I read some great ones. Um, I think probably overall my favorite book that I read this year is a book uh, by a woman named Helen McDonald mm. called H's for Hawk. And uh, it's a memoir, um, which again I think, in many ways, in this book she gets at these she gets at these themes. She's not a she, she doesn't write from a Christian perspective. Um, it's just a memoir about in the aftermath of her father's sort of un- sudden and unexpected death. Um, she uh, adopts a a goshawk. So she from the time she was a little girl, she's done falconry, where she's raised birds of prey and taken them hunting. And goshawks are this notoriously uh, uh, stubborn, violent, unpredictable, you know, tough bird. Um, very difficult to, to raise and train and all this sort of thing. So in the aftermath of her father's death, she adopts one and uh, begins to, to raise it and to train it and all of this. And so she just tells this story, 
And she, she weaves in to her own story, the story of T.H. White, who wrote The Once and Future King, um, and who also raised a goshawk and had a, had a just disastrous time raising one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, was a, it was an interesting read. Uh, you know, the story was great. Her sort of exposition of her own darkness is really powerful and compelling. And frankly, I think McDonald is just one of the, the best writers I've read in a long, long time. Her gift for mm-hmm. description, it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. Very grim, <laughs> like very much in a, a meditation in some ways on death, mm-hmm. but, um, but uh, a beautiful, beautiful book. And uh, yeah, I also read a, a novel I read this year that I really loved. It's just called Day, and it's by Howard Jacobson. Mm. Um, and it's sort of a post-apocalyptic uh, um, novel, you know, where where something terrible has happened, and a massive portion of the population has been wiped out. Um, but there's these there's essentially these political correctness laws that are in place. Mm. Um, and the emphasis on, on, from the government on society, like the emphasis is that people shouldn't feel too, too, uh, too joyful, a set of emotions or too sorrowful, a set of emotions. Mm. So there's all kinds of restrictions on like, on what books people can read and what music they can listen to and, you know, what's contraband and all this. Um, and, uh, and whenever they, and there's even restrictions on what they can talk about, about the past. And so, so you don't quite know what happened uh, in the book, um, except that they, they they refer to it as uh, what happened if it happened, and then they they also talk a bit about this thing called Project Ishmael, where everybody everybody's name is changed as mm-hmm. a result of what happened if it happened. And so the book really is about two characters in particular, two folks who are kind of matched up with hopes that they'll fall in love, and and as it tells their story. And it sort of explores the mystery of of what what actually did happen. Um, again, it's a really interesting book, a dark, dark, dark book, mm. <laughs> especially as it goes along. Um, and and in some ways, it's a uh, you know it's fairly openly a meditation on uh, on anti-Semitism and racial hatred in general. But it, it was again a slower book, but uh, mm. the best novel that I read this year for sure. That is very interesting. I mean, it's been a good year for books, good year for for movies and things. Any anything that you're working on particularly that that you can talk about or book projects or things that you that you're working on that you're excited about? Yeah, I'm I'm excited about uh, a few things. Um, some stuff some stuff's coming soon, but um, I, I'm in the middle of a writing project right now that I'm hoping to finish uh, in the next couple of months, and, mm. and hopefully will be out Lord willing in 2016. But a, a book that a book that looks at more at, at kind of how has culture formed us spiritually mm. wrestles a lot with Taylor, but wrestles with some other people who have, uh, have shined a light on that stuff for me. People like the philosopher Hannah Arendt and mm. the novelists and things like that. But then really looking at from there, looking at how the spiritual disciplines and the, the tradition of, of what the church has passed down and as spiritual disciplines and worship and all of this, how that can really reorient us, to life in the kingdom of God mm. and open our eyes to the ways that that kingdom is at work in spite of the ways that we've been sort of shaped and formed to see the world. Mm. That's really good. Well, thanks, man, for joining me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm just going to make a plug for your book, The Stories We Tell, which I think is a very useful 
book and tool for just kind of thinking through how we consume culture and also particularly what the stories we're telling uh, in media say about us and and how they kind of point to the transcendent uh, to to the divine, even if we don't even realize it, to point to Christ. I'm, I'm going to make a plug for that. But thank you for joining me today, and uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. I want to thank Mike Cosper for that great conversation on the best books and movies from his perspective of the year. Uh, I'd love to hear your feedback on this podcast and others. Why did you send us an email to wayhome at erlc.com? Also, if you've missed previous episodes of the podcast, you can go to danieldarling.com and uh, catch them all there or subscribe via your favorite software, iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Signal, however you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to sign up for the weekly, the ERLC's newsletter. You can sign up at my website, danieldarling.com, by clicking on the link there. But for now, thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. The Way Home is recorded and produced by Gary Lancaster. Research is conducted by David Clausen, and scheduling is handled by Marie Delf. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Mm-hmm.